I remember 25 years ago when I first met Bob Combs, it was a life-changing experience. Uh, Heidi and I were actually brought into town. We were candidating to be the youth pastor here at the Norton campus. And I remember we had just built the gym and the classrooms over there. And as a, we were getting to know Bob, he was walking us around the building, uh, kind of showing us the, the new parts of it and talking to us about what Grace was all about. I'll never forget as we were standing in the gym, kind of in the middle of our conversation, uh, a lady walked in and said, Pastor Bob, I need to talk to you. And Bob just disappeared, like in the middle of the conversation. He just went off to talk to that lady. And Heidi and I were kind of standing there by ourselves trying to figure out what was going on. He was gone for a few minutes. He came back and he goes, man, oh man. He said, that lady is a miracle. She's just a miracle. And so I said, what does that mean? Why is she a miracle? And he said, oh, she struggled with alcohol and drug abuse and lost her kids and God got her clean and sober and she came to know Christ. And now she serves here at the church as a part of our children's ministry. It's just a miracle what God's done in her life. Uh, we talked a little bit more. We were walking through the gym, kind of seeing the kitchen and out into the hallway. And a guy came in and said, Pastor Bob, I need to talk to you. And the same thing happened. He just, he just disappeared like the rapture occurred. He was just gone. And so Heidi and I were standing there and he came back in a few minutes. He said, man, that guy's just a miracle. He's just a miracle. And so now I'm intrigued. I'm saying, what, what does that mean, Bob? Well, alcohol, drugs, divorce, broken family. He came to know Christ, remarried, serving here at the church, one of our leaders. He's miraculous. It's miraculous what God has done in his life. And I looked at him and I said, man, Pastor Bob, you have a bunch of messed up people in your church. And he laughed a little bit and he goes, you know what? He goes, we like it that way. We like it that way. The church is a hospital for sick people. That is what it's, what it's supposed to be. That interaction changed my life, to be honest with you. I had never been around a healthy church before. Uh, the church I grew up in, you never let people know your problems. You faked it when you went there. And I really had no idea what a healthy church where you came as you were, you were met where you are, and you were loved and led toward Jesus. I invite Pastor Bob to come up here and sit with me. And uh, if you're newer to Grace Church, I think Pastor Jeff said it well. We are a bunch of messes that God and His grace have, has made miracles, right? And that kind of capsulizes this place. And what I can tell you is this, is a lot of what we do here in the flavor of Grace Church has been impacted by Pastor Bob. And so here's what we thought we'd do this morning. Usually on a Sunday morning, we'd open up God's Word and say, hey, let's look at some things but this morning, I want you to hear his heart. I want you to hear from him kind of the things that drive him so that you can be influenced as well. And so I just simply want to ask you some questions this morning. And I want to start with the most important question. I want to know where this good looking thing came from, all right? Let's start there and get it out of the way with. Well, um, very early in life, I realized I wasn't that tall. Uh. <laughs> Uh, uh, all the girls call me Pee-wee, you know. Uh, and uh, so I was trying to, to figure, figure things out since I wasn't that tall. And I flunked the fourth grade, and so I knew I wasn't that smart. And I, I decided that there was something special about me. 
And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was my looks. <laughs> and, and nobody was telling me. And, and I found that it worked better to tell them. <laughs> so I... <laughs> But seriously, I, I discovered very early that being a pastor uh, was a negative. And, and here's what I mean. P- people, when they realize you're a pastor, they, they, they oh, okay, let's be careful what you say. Uh, and you weren't a person. Uh, so I, I wanted to come up with something that would break the barrier. And early on when I came here, I uh, uh, called myself the Archbishop of Norton. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, somebody will still come up with that phrase. But, but I, I found that sometimes that was misunderstood by, by people. And uh, so I, I, I realized that wasn't working as well as I thought it would work. So uh, I thought more about the fact that I was so good looking. And uh, so I started using this statement uh, every, every place I went. Uh, they'll say, how are you today? And I say, well, I'm very good looking. Uh, and, 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 it, and it worked because out of that uh, came conversations and came relationships. And there's a lot of people today uh, that don't know my name, but they know I'm good looking <laughs> because I've, I've educated them. And that's, uh, that's been lots of fun. So. The amazing part about it to me is that you believe it. You actually believe it. That's amazing. Well, how, how can I say it if I don't believe it? I know it. I, know. I can't be very convincing. So I'm, He's, he's kind of fired up up here, all right? He, he <laughs> believes it so much. Some of you may not know this. We went back in the archives. He did a commercial where he stated it, and we found it. Want to play it for you. Watch this. Ego Cologne, a fragrance for a man or a woman. You think he's good looking? I'm like an overdue library book. I've got fine, fine, fine written all over me. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure where to go from there, brother. No, I'm, I'm not either. <laughs> hey, tell you us. know, I, I really didn't dance that well, did I? <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, <clears throat> so tell us this, 45 years, that's, that, like Jeff said, that's a long time. So these 45 years, looking back, here's what I'm curious if you could share with us. What are the things as you look back over 45 years that you're the most thankful for, maybe that energize you the most, as you think about the story of Grace Church? Uh, it's, it's, I would say it's transformed lives. That's, uh, it's been so meaningful to me to realize that God would use me in changing a life. Uh, uh, just to think that, that, that he would see fit to use my arms and my legs to communicate his, uh, his love. A couple of years ago, I got a phone call uh, from Louisiana, and um, I don't know anybody in Louisiana. 
But I took the phone call, and here was a man. He said, uh, I, I've really got my life right with, with God. And he said, I go around talking a lot as I uh, speak to different churches. And he said, I kept talking about Grace Church, and I learned this at Grace Church. And he said, it suddenly occurred to me that some foundational things I got when I was a foster kid in a home in Norton, Ohio, mm. and, and came to the church there. Mm. And some of those things that I didn't even realize that were affecting me were and, and was the foundation for me to get a hold of the fact that I was really, really loved by God. Mm. And he said, I, I, it just hit me that th this is where it all started. And I, I just want to call you and, and thank you for it. And, of course, that was very emotional when I, when I realized uh, what, he was, what he was saying. Uh, <laughs> I tell a story. Fred Thomas, who was in last service, uh, Fred uh, came to Christ early on in my 45 years here. And I, I remember the night that Dwight... Stair and I went into his home to talk to him about his relationship with Jesus, and, and he and his wife prayed to receive Christ, and they, they became a definite part of our church. He was an engineer at uh, Packaging Corporation of America in Ripman, and he met a guy there named Jim Dyer, and he invited Jim to come because he felt like he needed a church, and, and Jim and his wife began to come to the church, and they got on our softball team. And uh, Jim's neighbor uh, uh, liked to play softball. His name was John Finn. And so uh, he uh, invited John Finn to come to church so he could play softball, so John came enough that he could still play on the softball team. <laughs> and uh, Aiden, that was leading our music here this morning. Spent the time in the nursery, grew up in our church, uh, transformed lives. I, after the service, I, I was walking through the hall and several people were hugging me, and I said, you're another miracle, mm. you're another miracle, you're another miracle. Mm. Oh, my. It, I, I, I can't, tell you how meaningful it is to see somebody's life transformed by Jesus. And you, you do that and you get energized. I want to do that again. That was fun. Yeah. You retired about eight years ago, but you haven't slowed down much, have you? Uh, you still love what you do, don't you? I do. Yeah. I do. I was in a hospital yesterday in Cleveland. It was great. Mm. And I there was an officer sitting there because there was a prisoner in the room. And uh, after I visited for an hour or so with people with lot, lots of needs and hurting, I went out to that officer and I said, you know, could I, I go visit your prisoner? I, I said, would you, would you, I'm a pastor, would you let me in? He said, no, he's pretty agitated today and I, I, you probably better not go back there. And I said to him, I said, you know, hurting 
people hurt people. If you know all the pain in that guy's life in there, you'd cry. And he looked at me and he said, you're right. You're right. He said, I, 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 I see that. Um, I wish I could have gotten in to talk. Because who, who knows? God may have used, used me there. It's, it's fun. Really, I, I think that's the right word. To know that God has used you to cause somebody to know that they're loved. You've had this, this little motto that has driven your ministry, accepting people where they are, taking them where they need to go. Why don't you kind of share with us where that came from and how that's influenced what you've done here for the last 45 years? Probably, in, in, in a lot of ways, as a, as a little boy, uh, I, I really felt unacceptable. Um, you know, when we go out for recess and choose up for ball teams, I, uh, they begrudgingly, the last one had to choose would take me. Um, my family, because of circumstances, moved from place to place. And, um, and there, there's lots of ways uh, I, I felt really uh, unacceptable. There was a... Little publication that a funeral home here would send once a month, and it'd have little articles in there. And there was a, a article written by a pastor from New England that uh, I, I noticed, and, and I, I kind of liked the article every month. And it seemed like he came up with some things that was very creative. And he talked about a guy that went into a church in, in New England and sat down and didn't feel like he belonged there. Uh, felt like he was, he was out of place. And, I, and I, I, I thought about that, and I thought, how many people come into church and they, they feel unacceptable, they feel unloved, totally out of place, and the guy went on to, to say, we need to accept people wherever they are if we're going to take them where they need to go. And that, that grabbed me because people need to know in all their mess, in all their sin, in all their junk, that somebody still loves them. Especially, they need to know that Jesus loves them. A lot of times with dying patients, I'll sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That, that whole theme grabbed me because it, it hit me. If people don't feel accepted, I will not take them anyplace. I, I remember so clearly a guy. He's an alcoholic. <laughs> he had a big, long ponytail. Uh, I, I don't think I ever got him to come to church. I tried. But one day I was down here at the shopping center and he walked up to me and he says, you're not a pastor. He said, you're my friend. I never forgot that. I'm so glad he felt that way. Felt that I was his friend. He felt accepted by me. 
Now, I, I, I wish I could say, oh, that guy accepted Jesus. I, I, I don't know if that's true. But at least he knew I accepted him and cared for him. Right? So that, that, that whole theme, accept people where they are to take them where they need to go, boy, I'll, I'll pound that drum because I, I think it's very important. One of the most powerful stories you told me, I asked you a question. I said, when was the first time you remember feeling accepted? Because you described as a child, you felt short, unacceptable, not chosen. You shared a powerful story with me about you and your, your dad. Why don't you kind of share that with us? Um, <clears throat> when I was in, in grade school, uh, we lived what would be said the wrong side of the tracks. All the kids that came from a couple streets that uh, we, we always walked to school about, about two miles, and this was in Dayton, Ohio, and, and you could tell we were looked down on because we were the trash of the school. And uh, I... Um, I remember so, so clearly that my, my dad had not learned to drive until he was over 30 years of age because we had lived in eastern Kentucky and he uh, had a horse that uh, he rode back and forth teaching in a one-room school. Uh, really, it was the cheapest transportation and actually the most effective for where we live because there wasn't a lot of good roads in there. And uh, when we moved to Dayton, he had to learn to drive, and I can see the 37 Chevy that he learned to drive on. Um, no power steering on the car, so he hadn't negotiated all of the turns just right, and there's a few buildings, had some bricks out of them because he had hit the building. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, the the car was uh, was a mess and and uh, kind of embarrassing. And then when I was I, I was nine, uh, 1949, he got a new car. Uh, it was a 1949 black Chevy Coupe. I can see that car. And I I was so proud of that car. In fact, I. I embarrassed him a few times because I was comparing that car to somebody else's old car. Uh, uh, I, I just thought we really had, had made it because of my daddy's new car. We had uh, company from eastern Kentucky, which wasn't unusual. And uh, because I was so proud of the car, I was showing the kids the car and we got in and I was showing them all the knobs that I knew so much about. And uh, I, I wasn't aware that I did this, but it was a stick shift and I knocked it out of gear. And um, I told them we needed to get out of the car and we did and just as we did, the car began to roll. I couldn't get the door closed in time and so it caught against a support beam, and that door crumpled like an accordion, and the car rolled down the hill with that 
I can see the door flopping. And then it turned and went out into the garden. For me, uh, there was a sense in which I felt like life was over. Uh, you know, I, I not only was I not picked for the ball team, not only was I short and dumb, but now a very bright spot in our lives, I had messed it up. So I took off running. And I ran and ran and ran until I was exhausted. And then I climbed a tree and sat up in that tree for a while. And then I came down and I ran some more. And finally, not knowing what to do, I just end up crumpled on a path not far from the house. And then I saw my dad coming. He had been sick in bed because uh, he, at, at work, he was using a sledgehammer and somehow the sledgehammer had caught on something and instead of hitting what he meant to hit, he hit his hand and crushed his fingers and these, these two fingers never straightened out again. So he was in bed due to all the pain of that, and so he had this, this arm bandaged, and he was in his pajamas, and, and here he came to find me. When he got to where I was, I, I, I remember him reaching down and pulling me up, and, and he put that bandaged hand around me. Here's what he said. He said, I'm not going to punish you. I know you love that car as much as I did. I hope you've learned a lesson. I think the greatest thing I learned that day is my daddy loved a stupid little boy that makes all kinds of mistakes. He loves me no matter what I do. Oh, my. And, and I, I, I think I was able then to transfer that love that that's the way Jesus loves me. No matter how many mistakes I made, no matter how much I screw up, he pulls me up with two bandaged hands because of the nail prints and says, I love you. Um, I don't want you to forget that. Hope you learned a lesson. That's powerful, yeah. I, I think the moment you first shared that story with me, a light bulb went off in, inside of me. I began to realize where kind of your ministry personality uh, began to be planted. I never met your dad, but I'm grateful that he did that because the, the picture I have of you is the picture you just drew of your dad. Like, there's a sense to which there's many of us in the room that you've run after uh, in your pajamas, so to speak, figuratively, and you've placed your pain around us and ministered to us in and through and out of your own pain. And so, 
so appreciate that your dad did that. What a powerful story. I shared last service that, and I'm not the only one, one of the things that absolutely amazes me about you is your memory. Um, you have this ability to recite poems and different songs and things like that. And there's a poem in particular that's interesting that I think capsulizes this accepting people where they're at, to take them where they need to go, and understanding messes becoming miracles. It's called the touch of the master's hand. I wonder if you would indulge us and do that this morning. Would you do that? I, uh, I, I love this. I learned it as a teenager. I'm not sure why, but I did. Twas battered and scarred, and, and the auctioneer thought it were scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folk, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar. One dollar. Who'll make it two? Two dollars. Who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice. Going, going, ah, but no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward, and he picked up the bow, then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening those loosened strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as a caroling angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was both quiet and low, said, Now what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up along with the bow. A thousand dollars? Okay, who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice. Going, going, gone, cried he. The people cheered. And some of them cried, We do not understand. What changed its worth? Quick came back the reply. The touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune. He's battered and he's scarred with sand. And he's auction cheap to a thoughtless crowd. Ah, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game. He's traveling on. He's going once. He's going twice. He's going, going, and he's almost gone. Ah, but my master comes. And that foolish crowd they never can quiet understand the worth of one's soul. 
and the change that's wrought by the touch of my master's hand. That's real. It really is. The touch of the hand of Jesus. And he wants to touch us. He wants to heal us. He wants to restore worth and value to us. Sometimes uh, we refuse to let him. Oh, let the master touch your life. Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, I know your heart well enough to know something. Uh, as much as we're here celebrating you and Julie, and rightfully so, I know your heart is that Jesus get honor. Uh, I know you love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and demonstrate Jesus. So <clears throat> when you think about the life and story of Jesus, is there a story or a picture of Jesus that kind of stands out to you that maybe has had huge impact not only in your life, but how you do ministry? Well, the, the, the story that uh, comes to my mind as I think of that question is in John chapter 8. There, there's several stories that would remind, but John chapter 8, at the beginning of the chapter, is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Jesus had uh, spent the night it seems, on the Mount of Olives, and he came early in the morning. In fact, there's one version that says at dawn to, to the temple area, and he was, it says he was teaching people there. And then suddenly, uh, the religious leader brought this woman and put her in front of him and said, uh, we caught her in the very act of, of adultery. I'm, I'm not sure how they did that unless one of them had been involved. I, I, I really think that may have been the case. And they said, uh, Moses says, you know, that you're to stone uh, a woman like this. Uh, what do you say? And, and the picture I have in my mind that, that all of them already had their stones and they were holding them in, in their hand. And, and as I, I read the story, it, it seems that Jesus doesn't respond verbally. Uh, but stoop down and somehow begin to write in, in, in the sand. It doesn't say what he wrote, uh, but I, I remember years ago I, I heard a pastor friend of mine make the suggestion that he probably wrote sins. Greed. Gossip. Lust. That, that makes sense to me. Can't, can't prove that, but that, that makes sense to me. And then 
he looked at him and, and said, he that's he, without sin, let, let him first throw a stone. And then he started writing in sand again. And after a bit, he said to this lady, he said, uh, where are those who condemn you? And, and what had happened, Scripture says that they, they left one at a time, beginning with the oldest. He said that, that was the oldest one to the, to the youngest. They left in that order. And she basically said, there, there's no one condemning me here. Jesus was without sin. He could have condemned her. Isn't that interesting? The one person who had a right to condemn. He said, neither do I condemn you. Oh, my. See, some, sometimes we, we think Jesus is there to tell us how bad we are. That's just not true. That's just not true. I, I, I think Jesus is here to tell us all the potential we have. To tell us that we're made in his image and he wants to restore the image. He, he told her to go and live a changed life. I, I, I wish I had the record of that lady's life after that. Because I, I, I think it would be wonderful. Because she experienced the touch of the master's hand, really. Yeah. yeah that's one of my very favorite stories. And that, that, that drives me uh, as I encounter people. And I, I, I want to be like Jesus Saying, go and sin no more. Strikes me as I listen to you talk how God has used your own pain and redeemed it, and you've ministered out of pain, through your pain, into other people's pain. I'm curious if maybe we could end with this question. Chances are in a room this size, there is a person or people where pain just kind of has their heart in a vice grip right now. Struggle has been kind of what their reality is. What would you say to them this morning? Well, <laughs> I, I love this verse. It, it's come to be one of my favorite verses. Second Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now think about that. He took on our sins. Sometimes I don't think we believe that. But he took on our sins. That him says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He, He took the sins of my past. He took the sins of my present. He took the sins of my future. He said, give them to me. That's what he was saying on the cross. That's what he's saying when he said, it, it is finished. I've I finished paying. Give them to me. Psalm 103 says, he separates me from my sins as far as the east is from the west. 
So I'm not identified with my sins anymore. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I call it the divine exchange. He takes my sin, and he turns around, and he says, come here. I want to wrap you up in my righteousness. I want to give you my righteousness. I have taken your sins and dealt with them. Now I give you my righteousness. The Gaithers have a song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Ooh. Been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Oh my. I have a family resemblance. In fact, God looks at me and he says, you know, you look just like my son Jesus. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I look just like, man, I'll tell you, that gives me great value and worth. That makes me want to hold my head up. I want to act like his son, Jesus. Ooh, don't give up. Don't hide your sin. Get into your soul closet and pull all those things out and give them to Jesus. Let him take them. I love it, love it. Today, probably right now, this hour, Bob, across eight different campuses, probably right now, somewhere between five and 6,000 people are worshiping Jesus, hearing the gospel, because a little fourth grade boy who felt unacceptable, a little fourth grade boy who flunked out of fourth grade, somehow felt acceptance by his dad, and then decided to take Jesus at his word. I'll tell you something, brother. Our lives have been impacted matter how well we know you. And I simply want to say this. Thank you personally for the way you've impacted my life. Thank you corporately for the way that you have left an impact here at Grace Church. And thank you presently for how you continue to allow Jesus to use you. You guys join me one more time. Just thanking Bob. This morning. stay standing. I'm going to invite Garrett to come out with the band, and we're going to finish with a song. But I kind of want to say this as we close. You might be here, and maybe you're newer to Grace Church. Maybe you've never been here before. Maybe it's your first time in church. I don't know. As Pastor Bob told that story about that woman in John 8, you're like, I can relate. You might be here this morning, and you might be thinking, if my mess ever became known, I would be so embarrassed. I have such guilt, such shame, maybe such pain that's kind of gripping my heart. You know, I don't know where to go with it. I don't know what to do with it. The power of that story is this. At the end of the story, that gal is with the only one who not only didn't condemn her, but the only one who could help her. Because the one who didn't condemn her a few chapters later, he went and died for her. This morning, you can have the same hope, the same freedom, and the same forgiveness that she enjoyed by simply saying yes to Jesus. He loves you. He loves you. In fact, I like to say it this way. 
God loves you so much that he literally died to have a relationship with you. And this morning, just like that story in John 8, you can say yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Romans 8 says this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. This morning, that's his invitation to all of us. So God, I thank you this morning that we got to celebrate a friend of ours. But I thank you that that friend of ours, Pastor Bob and Julie, that their desire is to honor their Savior. So I'm so grateful that you love us. And I pray in this room for that person, that person who's probably sitting here who is in deep pain, not sure where to run, has a mess they don't want anyone else to know about. God, I pray this moment, right now, at this moment, they would recognize Jesus, you love them. That, that literally you came chasing them and that what you did on the cross, you did for them because you love them so much. And I pray this would be the day they say yes to Jesus as Savior and spend the rest of their life saying yes to Jesus as the leader of their life. We love you, Lord. Thank you so much for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name.